Robert Douglas Fairhurst is a professor of English at the University of Oxford and the author of several books, including most recently, The Turning Point, a year that changed Dickens and the world. This is Robert Douglas Fairhurst. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with Robert Douglas Fairhurst. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Uh, so you've written now a couple books about Charles Dickens, among other books that you've written, uh, the most recent being The Turning Point, A Year That Changed uh, Dickens and the World. Um, this is a, a much talked about author. You, you, as I said, you've written another book about him. Why did you feel the need to revisit him and why this particular part of his life? It's a really good question. Um so in some ways, Dickens is one of those writers who's always been there, at least for people in the 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, when I was a child, I grew up in a house that was in a street called Dickens Drive, for instance, uh, completely by coincidence. Uh, there was another street around the corner called uh, Copperfield Way. Uh, there was Pickwick Close that, again, was just around the corner. Um, of course, it was his face that used to leer out at me from the back of a £10 note. Um, when I went to Chatham quite recently, I noticed there was a, uh, a restaurant called A Taste of Two Cities, mm. Indian restaurant. Uh, there was um, even a, a, a body piercing studio called Little Dorrit Body Piercing. Um, so once you put all those things together, you realise that Dickens is one of those writers who's become part of the cultural fabric. And the reason I first got attracted to him and the reason I wrote my first book was that um, I wanted to know why that was, but also why a writer could be so kind of fundamental, even though he himself was so suspicious of taking anything for granted. Everything that Dickens looks at, he, he sees with a fresh pair of eyes. Um, he sort of strips away our sense of familiarity. He makes us look at things in a, in a different way, as if the page becomes a kind of lens or a, or a perspective glass in some sense. Um, so that was why I wrote my first book. I returned to Dickens because I realized that Dickens himself wasn't consistent or stable over the course of his career. And because my first book had dealt with how he emerged as a developing author, I was really interested in that moment in mid-career, right at the moment, uh, the exact kind of hinge of, of his writing life, when in fact, for a number of writers and readers, he'd sort of, he was a busted flush. Uh, he, he, he would never be able to recapture his early success with, with novels like the Pickwick Papers. But there was one novel, which was Bleak House, which radically changed how he wrote, and also I think changed how people thought about him. And it turned out that that was also a moment where the country as a whole was changing its sense of itself and its place in the world. And it happened that these things happened in the same year, which is 1851. So I wanted to look at that year as a kind of pivot or, as the Victorians themselves would say, turning point and something which also then brought Dickens and uh, the Victorian age together, but in, in new and strange ways. OK, so I, I do want to talk about your latest book, um, but to take things slightly chronologically here, uh, I want to also uh, mention uh, or ask a few questions uh, about your earlier book, Becoming Dickens. Um, of course. And there are a couple of things that are noteworthy um, about this period of his life. One thing that I remember reading George Orwell saying about Charles Dickens 
is that uh, he he claimed that Dickens didn't have a sense of uh, life as tragedy, which I, I don't think is true about his writing, uh, but it's certainly not true of his life. Uh, I mean, this guy's upbringing was rather difficult, wasn't it? Oh, extraordinarily so. I mean, he spent um, some time living with his parents in the Marshalsea prison, which was for debtors. Uh, and then he moved out of the Marshalsea and lived as a very young child, nine, ten years old, um, in a, a boarding house on his own and had to work for a living pasting um, uh, labels onto uh, bottles of shoe polish. We don't know exactly how long he did that for. Uh, maybe it was a few months, maybe it was up to a year. But what we do know is that it, it, it produced this, this scar tissue in his memory and in his imagination that he never really sort of got over. And in novel after novel, when he describes children who are vulnerable or abused, you can see him sort of picking at this scar tissue like a scab. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and when he leads, when he gets out of this sort of uh, miasma, this, his very early upbringing, and he starts trying to make it in, in the world, it's kind of interesting how many different professions that he, he could have chosen. I mean, he's acting, he's dabbling with the law, he's stage manager. Uh, was this like a compensation thing? Was he just trying to sort of, um, you know, you talk about picking up the scabs. Was he trying to sort of heal his wounds by maybe becoming a, a successful person in the world? Well, it's interesting. I mean, he even thought about emigrating to the West Indies at one point. I would say that Dickens was fundamentally an actor. And even when he was writing, he was acting. Because we know from one of his daughters who lay on a couch watching him one day, that he would go up to the mirror in his study and he would gesticulate and grimace and become the characters in the mirror before going back to his desk and writing down the voices of those characters. And in some ways, I think that his experiments in living as a young man, where he does think about auditioning as a professional actor, um, he does start working as a clerk, he does think about all sorts of other professions. This is him, I suppose, trying out or imagining trying out different roles. And perhaps one of the things that makes Dickens both a wonderful writer, but also um, a slightly awkward person to write about, um, is that he sometimes didn't entirely distinguish between real life and fiction or, or stories or making things up. And that was also true of his own life, not just of, um, of writing things down on the page. When you say he was slightly awkward to write about, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is um, his daughter Katie, uh, after his death said, my father was a wicked man, a very wicked man. Now, you might think that's pushing things a bit far, especially given his uh, devotion to charity, um, uh, the amount of good he did in supporting other writers. Um, you know, he, he was devoted to good works, not just literary works. Um, but then if you look at the way he treated his wife, um, in particular, the affair with the actress Ellen Turnan, the way in which he more or less turfed his wife out of the marital home, he forbade his children to see her. Um, you know, I, I think these are these are not the actions of someone that you would want to defend on a personal level. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, how much do you chalk that up to 
on some level his upbringing not to excuse the guy but i i do know people who've grown up like in orphanages and it's rather harsh and can sort of embitter people for a lifetime yeah there may, there may be something of that um his own betrayal by his parents uh his distrust of any kind of authority that came after that you can see how that might have created um scar tissue at the level of his own kind of emotional well-being uh, as well. But I think really it's because Dickens, as I said a bit earlier, found it very hard to distinguish between um, facts and fiction. And that meant that when he saw an old girlfriend of his, or rather he heard from an old girlfriend of his called Maria Biednell, 20 years after they'd been, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, and she warned him that she was, you know, sort of fat and older, and he sort of dismissed it. And then he saw her and realized she was indeed fatter and older. But in his head, he, he'd fixed her as this, um, this extraordinary kind of vision of kind of youth and beauty, because in his head, she'd never aged. In his head, she'd stayed exactly the same, mm. like a photograph, as when he last saw her, forgetting the fact that real people, unlike fictional characters, do indeed grow up and change. And then he got his revenge by writing about her as Flora, in the pages of David Copperfield, when David goes to see his old girlfriend and realizes she's become fat and silly. So that was the other thing that Dickens did, not only perhaps treating real world like a story, which included packing two of his own sons off to Australia, as if that was a story he didn't have time to write, but he knew that they would make a good fist of it, but also imagining that real people would somehow stay like the characters that he'd written about decades earlier yeah and, and that's I, i'm curious when we talk about his development as a writer and this is something that you talk a lot about uh, in the turning point uh where he makes this change um it, it seems like part of what makes artists important in the history of their art is when they uh, sort of bend the direction of, of their art history um we can talk about uh, Bleak House and how that bent the direction of his personal artistic history. Um, but at, at what point, like when he writes the Pickwick Papers, is he doing anything really new with the novel at this point? Yes, he is. Not least the fact that he's serializing it. He's publishing it in installments. He's turning it into a, a series of loosely connected papers, which over time gradually build up momentum and turn into a novel. But when he first starts, they are supposed to be kind of free-floating fragments um, based upon the adventures of a group of friends who are traveling around and having adventures. Um, and there's no sense at that moment that they are going to build up enough momentum to take on the force uh, and trajectory of a plot. Um, it's only over time that that happens. So Dickens the novelist starts off as a sketch writer first in Parliament and then by writing uh, comic sketches for, for journals and newspapers. And the Pickwick Papers starts off as a series of sketches and then it becomes something else. And, and what's new about Bleak House? What's new about Bleak House is that for the first time, Dickens is interested in just how tightly connected British society is and the world as a whole is. 
And he produces that not only by asking about it explicitly in the novel, by saying, what connection can there be between? And then he says, you know, the, this crossing sweeper and uh, in London, and then these um, uh, titled people uh, living in the countryside. But he shows how intimately connected they are through ties of family and friendship and disease and finance and all the other things that make us all part of the same story. But what Dickens also does is not only turn all those connections into a story, is that he makes the story itself intimately interconnected by repeating certain ideas and phrases with variations. So that as we read it, we become part of this world in which everything is linked to everything else. And how is that related then to the changes that are going on in, in the country? So it's related because the, the, the great um, event of 1851 is the Great Exhibition, which is this um, a grand display of um, manufacture and art and um, sort of trinkets, not only from Britain, but from all around the world, including from America. You know, Colt, Samuel Colt um, displays uh, his early model of the revolver there, for instance. Um, and it's because of that that people who go to the Great Exhibition can almost perform a grand tour of the world in a few hours. It's like the edited highlights of uh, years-long travel, but something you can recapture just in a series of little visual snapshots as you walk through the aisles of the Great Exhibition. So individual members of the public are also realizing that the world is a lot smaller and more interconnected than perhaps they first realized. Uh, and Dickens doesn't like the Great Exhibition because he sees it as um, sort of chaotic and um, uh, sort of splashily um, kind of ostentatious uh, and a distraction from the serious social problems that are happening just a few hundred yards away. But it does, though, parallel his sense that what people need is the kind of writing which will be true to and express a world in which not just through the snaking cables of um, the telegraph or through um, railway tracks uh, or through all the other ways in which technologically people have been joined together, but in terms of the way that we think about each other as well. It might be that fiction become a way of um, exploring and testing and even developing the ties of sympathy and understanding that link us all together. And that's what a novel like Bleak House does. And, and roughly how old was he when he wrote it? So um, he turns 40 uh, uh, just as he's published the first installments. Okay. And... and his, I believe the Pickwick Papers came when he was like 25. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So at this point, he's been basically famous for 15 years. And, and is the public, you, you kind of touched on this earlier, that people said, oh, look, the best work of his was behind him. Is the public at all growing tired of him? Well, some people are growing tired of him. Some people are just a little bit... Um, bored with the new direction that his fiction seems to have taken um, after his, uh, his travels uh, to, to Italy and to America on reading tours. So um, 
after he publishes Pictures from Italy, after his tour of Italy. Uh, in fact, his friend John Forster, in the authorised biography, um, wrote that that was a turning point. That's the phrase he used in Dickens's life. Um, and in some ways, I suppose he was thinking about it as a turning point because Dickens, for the first time, had got away from Britain for a long period of time and therefore had an opportunity to look at Britain as if, as if with a stranger's eyes. He could see it kind of clearly from a distance, including all its faults uh, and its difficulties. Um, but it's not, I think, until Bleak House that he really tries to put that into practice. Early novels that attempt it, like Martin Chuzzlewit, sort of attempt it by sending characters over to America and they shuttle back and forth between Britain and America. But it doesn't have that same sense of global reach as a novel like Bleak House does. So that's, I think, what makes it different. And where does he go after this? Like you, you describe this as a turning point, but in what sense are the later novels influenced by this moment in time? So there's, there's a critic called Lionel Stevenson who very influentially argued that Bleak House was the first of what he called Dickens's dark novels. And by that, he didn't only mean that they were serious and socially committed, although they are those things. And they were still funny. There are some very, very funny bits in Bleak House. What I think he meant was that they were something like a shadow cast by the age. And the novels themselves were like a shadow that is cast on the age. And Bleak House is the first of those novels because, as I said, it's far more um, kind of consciously and deliberately written, which sounds like a paradox for someone who is a novelist. But what I mean by that is that everything is, is very carefully and precisely calibrated. Every word is kind of sifted and arranged. And we can see this from the manuscript, which is, is dense and busy with corrections. Compare it with an early novel like Big Big Papers to use your example, or Oliver Twist, there's, there's barely a word that's blotted. It's picaresque fiction in which uh, just as one event follows another, so one word follows another without any kind of hesitation or, or, or brooding. Whereas in Bleak House, we see Dickens carefully and precisely measuring every word because he wants it to be this dense, interconnected verbal weave, precisely because it's trying to capture that sense of a dense, interconnected social weave. Yeah, and I'm curious then, as you're describing this, like what are some of the limitations of the approach of serializing your novel? Like one thing that's sort of famously uh, said about a book like A Tale of Two Cities was that he was paid by the word. And so the whole intro, it's the best of times, the worst of times, and he gives you know a bunch of different examples. Um, it, you know, On some level, that probably was influenced by the fact that every new example he was he was giving is another you know few cents in his pocket or something like that um yeah did, which did, is nonsense of course because um uh, it's not that he was paid by his publishers he decided how many installments he wanted to produce mm. and then he produced them um which is a very different kind of and also he had the whip hand always in the relationship with his publishers after his first novel so it was always Dickens choosing what to write and how to publish it. It wasn't his publishers employing him after Pickwick Papers to do anything at all. I see. So is that then just a myth that he was paid by the word? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true in the sense that um, the more he wrote, then the more installments he would sell. But oh, he, of course, 
realized early on how many installments he wanted. And it's not as if he stopped on, you know, 38 or, you know, 12. You know, he, he knew from the beginning how many he was going to uh, produce. I see. Okay, that, that makes more sense. And, and this, this ability to have the upper hand where he has this huge success at the beginning of his career. One thing that I'm curious about, where he becomes this sort of famous guy, uh, he's young. There are a lot of young, I, I mean, to take an example from uh, contemporary life, like someone like Sally Rooney, for instance, mm, who sure, sure. I, I really like. Um, but the, the recent book of hers that came out, I haven't read it yet, so I can't really judge, but the protagonist is, you know, uh, a, a, yeah, basically a young writer who is suddenly famous and it, it just feels like, okay, well, where, where can you really go with this? Um, yeah. but it doesn't seem like he fell into that trap. Do you think that's just uh, a feature of his personality or was like the media environment different back then? Well, I, both. Um, I think that, well, Lee Hunt, the writer, said that when you met Dickens, his face had the life and soul of 50 human beings in it. Uh, you know, it's animated. It was um, uh, responsive. It was never still. One of the reasons that he hated having his face photographed is that um, he thought that it made him look as if the life had been pumped out of him. Um, what fiction gave him was an opportunity to be as flexible and um, kind of uncertain and sort of porous to the world uh, as, as he wanted to be. And, and because the world was changing so rapidly, Dickens himself had to change. And he changed from those early picaresque adventures to the socially committed um, uh, world of, of novels like Bleak House. So in some ways, he was a kind of um, blob of mercury that whenever anyone tried to understand him by putting their thumb on him, trying to pin him down, he sort of scattered, went, went in a different direction, tried to write in a, in a different way. Which isn't to say that he didn't develop certain kind of tics and mannerisms, and, and modern critics have had a lot of fun trying to pin down what makes Dickensian writing truly Dickensian. But it is true, I think, that every novel for him was a new adventure in the possibilities of fiction. Yeah, and, and this is something that we talked about a little bit before this, um, where we're talking about him changing, and but certain features of his personality also um, were a little unchanging, uh, including th this in public life, very magnanimous, um, you know, fought for children's rights and um, you know, charities, et cetera. Um, but as you mentioned, in private life, I mean, he, his wife apparently said that uh, he tried to lock her up in basically an insane asylum because then he wouldn't have anything to do with her. Um, it, it did not seem, it, it, it's just very shocking on some level to see a guy like Charles Dickens, who seems the opposite of a bah humbug character to sort of embody some of that inside himself. Do you think it affects how we look at his writing at all? I, I very much hope not. Um, I said earlier that one of the things that he did sometimes was look in the mirror uh, and become the characters that he was then going to write about. In some ways, all his characters are Dickens. And that means that as well as Tiny Tim, the vulnerable um, uh, kind of weak child, which he saw himself as, given his own childhood experiences, he also saw a bit of Scrooge in him. And Scrooge, of course, has a great sense of humour. Scrooge is a wisecracking 
kind of villain who then reforms and becomes in some sense the hero the true hero uh, of the story um yeah D dickens had the capacity to be um mean-minded and mealy-mouthed and um all the other things that we classically associate with uh, the victorian age and or he had the capacity to be generous and genuinely humble and um, extraordinarily um, self-effacing. Um, and it's the fact that he's both those things that I think makes him so fascinating because we see both of those aspects in the writing itself. Yeah, and, and do you think on some level, um, like this is something that I've, seems to be true of a lot of writers that they're sort of like writing advice to themselves, like, um, David Foster Wallace was all about, you know, the, the evils of entertainment. And, uh, and yet he was a guy who was obsessed with watching TV, apparently. Like Tolstoy was, uh, you know, writing reasons for why God, uh, you know, why to believe in God, even while he was struggling with it. Uh, plenty of other examples. Um, do you think on some level he was almost sort of, he had the self-awareness to realize that he was as you've said, had the Scrooge in him and was sort of writing advice uh, to that part of himself? It, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. I, I, I don't know the answer, but I suspect he was very self-unaware when it comes to fictional characters. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Um, one is that when he wrote David Copperfield, he introduced a large fragment of autobiography into it. It's something he'd originally written as part of a memoir. Uh, and then he simply crowbarred it in as David's experience. And you realize then that David Copperfield and Charles Dickens have the same initials, but just reversed as if Dickens was looking in a mirror, as of course he was when he was writing about David, yeah, C-E-D-D-C. But then you look at um, a slightly um, later novel like A Tale of Two Cities and he realized that he originally wanted the two characters who are doubles of each other to be called Charles Darney and Dick Carton. So Charles and Dick, C, D, D, C, you know, and these are just some of the many, many Charlies or Charleses that make their way in and out of the pages of the fiction. Is it conscious? Is it a joke? Is it a little bit like um, an Alfred Hitchcock putting himself in, in his movies or more recently Stan Lee, always insisting on having a cameo appearance um, in, in the superhero films he was executing, producing on? I, I don't think so. I, I think it's just that Dickens, as we're naturally and sympathetically, saw himself within these characters and sometimes that bubbled over into the names he chose for them. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, you would have to imagine it, it would be hard not to have some self-consciousness about the fact you're writing a character named after yourself, you know? Well, you, you, you'd think so. And yet so many of the other things that Dickens did make us think that he was entirely unselfconscious about that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it's easy to forget just what a strange man he was. We, we, we think we know him because his works are so famous, but he was a far stranger individual than perhaps we give him credit for. How so? Well, everything from his um, 
well, everything from his appearance, the fact that he um, loved wearing flashy waistcoats, but then complained if people pointed him out in public. Um, but then occasionally was absolutely delighted when people point him pointed out in public. You know, there's that kind of mixture of feelings. On the one hand, desperate to um, be the self-made man who um, was a sort of central kind of pillar of the Victorian establishment. On the other hand, desperate to be anonymous and uh, secretive and lurking in the shadows. Um, and it might be those are just necessary kind of parts of the same personality if you're a famous writer. But Dickens, as with everything else in his life, seemed to push those things to extremes. And the extremes met, and they met in, in him. Yeah, um, I, I do know that you have to go soon. Um, but sort of final question here. What is, we talk about the, the turning points in his career as a novelist, uh, the innovations that he brought to the novel. What do you think, as a writer, his legacy is? I think that Dickens changed the possibilities of fiction in terms of complicated multi-plot novels and narratives which are like quicksilver in the sense they shift very quickly between comedy, tragedy, pathos, social satire, and so on. I think that Dickens himself as a kind of literary chameleon changed what we think that writers can do and can be. The fact that he was a social activist, he was a performer, he was um, uh, what was sometimes at the time known as you know, a character or a celebrity. That word comes into the language in a modern sense during his lifetime. Um, and I suppose the fact that Dickens also affects the language itself, that so many of the words and phrases that we now take for granted, whether it's catchphrases like bar humbug or it's just the use of individual words, which according to the Oxford English Dictionary, dozens of them are first brought into print by Dickens, mm. who, who hears these things on the street and he's attracted by, by novelty. Uh, and, and he, he brings them into his writing as a way of giving it that kind of gloss of, of newness. Um, and yet because of his own fame, that gloss then becomes sort of part of the writing itself. And we simply now take those words and ideas for granted. So it's not just that Dickens is a writer who lived back then in the 19th century, even if we don't know his writing, even if we haven't read his writing, he is part of the air that we breathe when we write about or speak about anything else. Yeah, when, when you said he brought all these new words into print, it's probably not an instance of that, but it was an instance of it for me. When I remember uh, in Great Expectations, one character calls another, he goes, uh, as an insult, he goes, you noodle. And I, I remember reading that. I was like, this guy's a call somebody a noodle? <laughs> what the hell? Um, he did. Yeah. And, and that wasn't new, but but it was a really good example of how he's taking um, everyday street language uh, and he's bringing it into kind of literary culture. And it's that collision of the high and the low, the stuff we know and the stuff we don't know, that actually makes the novels, as we would say, Dickensian. Yeah. 
Um, the book is The Turning Point, A Year That Changed Dickens and the World. Uh, Robert, thank you very much. Before we go, how can people find you? Um, if they want to see more of your books, um, I know they're probably available wherever books are sold. Um, do you have a website or anything like that you want to give out? Um, I, I don't have my own website, but um, I have pages on the uh, the websites of Magdalen College in Oxford, uh, and that's spelled like Mary Magdalene, M-A-G-D-A-L-E-N. So more, or just um, uh, the Oxford University uh, website through the English faculty. So if people just Google my name, those are the first two things that, that come up straight away, and they can uh, get my contact details through there. Fantastic. Robert, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you to Robert Douglas Fairhurst, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.